New year, new live stream, time of the month. That's right. Now we're streaming live every third Saturday of the month. That means we're doing the bonus episode on January 15th at 4 p.m. Pacific or 7 p.m. Eastern. This month is about murder, mystery, and Martin Luther King Jr. You can find us on twitch.tv slash If you can't make it, Patreon listeners $5 and above will receive the recording on patreon.com slash sexwithghosts. We're drinking orange juice and vodka. Because the Seattle Times reported that he drank it once. See you then. I couldn't say that without memory. <laughs> I don't usually fall asleep anywhere but my bed. I'm a sleeper. I could fall asleep anywhere. I can sleep, fall asleep anytime. It just has to be in my bed. <laughs> yeah, I could probably sleep anytime, but it's definitely also anywhere. Welcome to Sex with Ghosts. I'm Molly here today with my very good friend Bridget, the best couch sleeper. <laughs> I don't know. That's a that's a weird one. How are you, Bridget? Oh, that's good. That's good. Now you have to keep in the yeah, couch I know. thing. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> like, oh shit, I screwed myself. Um, also I liked how the sex with ghosts sounded like a question. It was. And then I was like, oh, should I redo it? And I'm like, no, no. let's just do it. We'll keep it. <laughs> because we keep it authentic here. It is. And I feel like the most recent episode was very authentic. So you should listen to it at some point. But today we're following up on our story from last week. Nice. Because last week we talked about the childhoods of Anthony Broadwater and Alice Siebold, and we learned about her rape in 1981 and the obvious trauma she suffered from it. We saw how writing was her way of coping with the trauma. And then we learned about the fateful day when Alice passed Anthony in the street and went to the police only for her to misidentify Broadwater in the lineup. And for the DA to blatantly misconduct the investigation. I like how when you're like, we're finishing, this is the second part. And I just said, nice. And then hearing you do the recap, it's like, oh, yeah, this is also very dark. Yes. Also not nice. Also a lot of not nice stuff going on here. I was going to come back to that last sentence there, but. I couldn't figure out a good way to say the DA is a bad person, an immoral. Well, it's not that. It's like they did bad. They did bad thing. But, oh, it's going to get too philosophical too early. But <laughs> yeah, what is an immoral person if not, you know, projecting ideas of racism into 
your work, which literally affects somebody else's quality of life, feels immoral to me. Yeah, yeah. And if I recall from last week, there was a lot of terrible leading on the DA within that misconduct. It wasn't like, oh, the DA read something wrong. The DA was literally feeding to our only witness and victim what the DA wanted to hear to, or the ADA. Yes. To go ahead with this case. Oops. I did say DA in that, but I did mean ADA. So May 17th of 1982 is when the trial occurs. This is in Onondaga County. And Onondaga did not have a public defender. So it relied on volunteers from private practice. What? Yeah. And when I read that, I thought it was kind of surprising. Maybe I guess it seems like like some weird lottery of like you're either gonna get like the like injury lawyer. Sure, yeah. Or you're gonna get like the the biggest bad guy in town. And by bad guy, I mean the guy who like is really good, the guy you want. Right, right. Who's just doing this for volunteer work. As an aside, I do find it weird when cities rely on volunteer firefighters. I just find that to be just mind boggling. I think with firefighters, it's like there's a real motivation. Is there? Yeah, because like usually it's in a tiny town where you know everyone. And if like Gary's farm is on fire, you're going to go help. Right. So, yeah, Gary, people will put out your farm fire. But if you're like in a if you're in a city with a volunteer, well, even a city, because then everybody fires happen so fast in a city. But volunteer lawyers, it's like you could phone it in. You're like, this is my I'm just volunteering. Wow. I would hope that most people most people are in it for at least like superficially good reasons. The Broadwater case was assigned to Stephen Paquette, who was a defense attorney who had two years of experience, which is all right. He found Broadwater to be an unusual client because he was intensely eager to cooperate with the DA's office. Quote, he was emphatic throughout that they got the wrong guy. That's the fucked up thing, right? Like... So many messages we have received, I'd say until like really recently have before social media in society at large, if you ask somebody what to do, if you're accused of a crime, they would say, well, talk to the cops. And it's only people who say, I need to talk to my lawyer that seemed guilty. Like that was sort of the thing you saw in media and on TV a lot. And then it's only recently since social media that activists are like, do not talk to them. <laughs> like, right. you, ha- you have a right to an attorney and that is a very important right. And I feel like that wasn't so abundantly clear until recently. That's probably true. He was also a 20 year old, so kind of young and probably had more faith in the system, especially since he was a Marine. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. 
Mr. Peckett often felt like his black clients couldn't get a fair shake in Onondaga County because juries were often white and conservative. But despite that, Peckett encouraged Broadwater to opt for a bench trial, which was because he's considered the judge Walter T. Gorman to be a thoughtful and competent adjudicator. Wait, what does a bench trial mean? Okay, this makes way more sense. Now I have much more respect for this defense attorney because what a bench trial is, there is no jury. It's just a judge, which makes a lot of sense because in his experience, Black people would not really get a fair trial with a jury. Okay, okay. The prosecutor was William Mastine. William believed that they had the right guy. However, his law career ended a decade later after he pleaded guilty to defrauding a client. So this guy's whole uh, (laughs) stance on the court cases, he doesn't give a fuck. (laughs) This trial was actually very short, especially presumably because it was a bench trial. As we spoke about earlier, DNA analysis was unavailable at the time, but they did have a forensic chemist testify that the pubic hair from a Black person which had been recovered from the rape kit was consistent with a hair sample from Mr. Broadwater. Oh my God, that is such a made-up science. It is, yes. Hair comparison has since been discredited as an unreliable science. It matches little beyond race and is responsible for many wrongful convictions. Oh, my God. I mean, that's some of this forensic science bullshit. It's just like just a way for cops and DAs to like add more circumstantial evidence to a case that's already seems not a strong case. That is probably true. The other main argument was putting Alice on the stand where she was asked to point to a rapist. And she pointed at Broadwater being the only black man there. So I watch a lot, not a lot, a lot, but I watch enough. I watch enough crime docs. And when they do the court case, they always ask the victim, like, can you point to the person who assaulted you or whatever, whatever the court case is about. And they always point. There's like, it's the dumbest point in history. Yeah. What, is, what does it say? Nothing. I don't know. But it just shows like how theatrical. Yeah, I guess. The whole court thing is like, we're going to ask you to point to who assaulted you, which is going to be obvious who it is, no matter what you said prior to that court date. Realizing how and I think I've realized it more so recently as I've gotten older and and been paying attention more. A lot of these things that happen in the court system is just pure theater. That's bizarre to me. Like if it's not on television, why? Why? They're not even doing it for anyone. They're not even doing it for a jury at that point. They're really just doing it for the judge. 
it's both, right? You're selling the narrative of what you're telling people you believe to be the truth. So on both sides, and they do that too with innocent people where like that was coming up. I was listening to some of the Ghislaine coverage and like how in that case, they were trying to like the um, defense was trying to mess with these victims accounts by saying, well, in 2005, you said this. Now you're saying this. And this, these are court cases, you know, that have been in the judicial system in different forms for a long time. But depending on who your lawyer is, your lawyer may have you sign an affidavit that's written in a specific language that they felt at that time would benefit the victim the most. So then, you know, something that's been in court for the last 10 years or whatever, I don't know when the first Epstein case was, it was 2010s, right? Something like that. Now they have all this documentation with like trying to mess them up by saying, well, you said this word instead of that word. So do you really know, is your, how could your story be true? And it's like the tiniest thing. And it's just so unfair to victims. I don't like the law. I don't <laughs> like it at all. In fact, I mean, I know it's a necessary, but I'm glad I don't have anything to do with it. I mean, it makes me appreciate appreciate anarchy more. And by that, I don't mean like we just go completely lawless, but there's got to be a more creative, fair way to think about these things than the system we have now. That's probably true. But really, if you think about it, idealistically, a jury situation is the anarchist way because you would want to be tried by a jury of your peers like that would be because it's a collective thing you know i feel like that's that's how they sell it to us well yeah but but then you have lawyers involved you have judges involved that all have their own biases yeah but i don't i see i I just don't think that you can possibly prevent that because that's just human nature but what if we got rid of some of the representation what if it was more emphasis on giving the jurors more power and taking away power power from some of these more elitist institutions. Okay, fine. (laughs) All right. She testified, I could not have identified him as the man who raped me unless he was the man who raped me. I'm not quite sure what that says. But anyway, she was convinced at that time that he was the person who raped her. Yikes. Yeah. And I'm sure after all that coaching and people building up your confidence, like, oh, yeah, you found the guy. It's like you either have to go all in or what what are you even going to court about? Yes, I believe that's true. And I can't recall if I said this at the end of the last episode, but I meant to throughout Lucky Siebold describes herself as clinging to authoritative adults who assume the roles of her absent parents. Classic Freudian problem. And the one, of course, from this instance is the assistant DA who was convincing her that Broadwater was the rapist. And it was another woman. Yes. So there's got to be something. Another woman acting as almost your peer. Yep. Well, and, and it wasn't even her peer. She actually did talk about how she looked up to her because she, 
this woman was strong and she had a position in society and that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I guess I meant pure like is in not a direct correlation, but like someone someone she could relate to. We can understand each other. We're college educated women. Mm, yes. We know what it's like to be in these male dominated worlds and we're talking about something sensitive like a sexual assault case. Yes. I do agree, yes. Some real mind fuckery. Siebold was given a short break while testifying where the judge, Walter Gorman, came to her and asked her about her family, which is, you know, a little off, a little weird. Yeah, that's interesting. Is there any reason why? No, but it will play a part in the exoneration later. That's super bizarre. So the judge didn't offer any reason like to anyone at the time why he was asking her those questions. No, but I think on a human level, which I think we have to separate from the judge level, but as a human, you would see this poor woman who she was described as shaking. She was very nervous and obviously stressed out by the trial. Okay. I was just thinking, it reminds me of like when I was in high school and I got in trouble for drinking. And I was afraid of getting like in my school, you were always told, like, if you didn't report that you got in trouble for drinking and they found out they would take away all these privileges you had. Right. But if you reported on yourself, you would get a smaller sort of punishment or some something, you know, the good conduct code that they have signed to be in sports and stuff. So worried about that I went and told the athletic director I have no idea why the athletic director except for maybe because of extracurricular activities or somehow field under him but you had to tell the athletic director like so I got in trouble with drinking and it I'll relate it back to Alice because in that moment when he's trying to come up with like some sort of punishment he starts bringing up my family as like some sort of excuse for what I did. And it just makes me think like being raped at this time, it was still, I think, a pretty common thought that women somehow caused their own um, sexual assaults, either the way they're dressed or the way they acted. And I feel like if he's asking her about her parents and she starts telling him like, yeah, my parents aren't around then it becomes somewhat more empathetic, like, oh, she probably didn't know better to not be out late by herself like that because her parents didn't have a better grasp on teaching her these things. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. I'm not sure, but I forgot to mention um, over the last week, I did do some additional research, you know, just because. And one of the Fun facts I came across was her dad's re reaction to the rape, which was first when she got home initially, he said, would you like something to eat in a very, I don't know, they portrayed it as a, he didn't want to talk about, you know, what went on. He didn't want to. Oh, my God. He went full denial. Yes. Yes. 
he's just gonna be like, "Yes, you're just home to have some dinner with us." Okay, like that's pretty fucked up. Yes, and uh, the second one was apparently he said, "I'm glad this happened to you and not your sister," which I think, in his defense, was more of a. I don't think your sister would have handled it as well. But as a young woman, you probably were very, very traumatized by that. Oh, yeah. I feel like parents are so good at that. That's not great. Not great. (laughs) So she didn't have a great family support at this time. But the judge was sympathetic to her, as we can see. However, Broadwater did have a couple points in his defense The police officer that Broadwater spoke to that day confirmed that he was speaking to Broadwater and that he had said to him, don't I know you? I read a little bit more about that fact, and it was like, well, Alice supposedly thought, oh, he's so blatant that he's going to talk to me and then he's going to talk to a police officer. So it's like she clearly saw something that wasn't there but that is what was happening so it was like kind of crazy so was he testifying so if he's like he said that to me the cop that would be in defense of broadwater yes yes okay broadwater also testified last and he was asked by his lawyer to discuss his unique facial markings which were features that Siebel never reported. He had a scar under his chin, and he had an operation on his eye, which presumably left some sort of mark behind. He also had a chipped tooth. Oh, man. That's, I got to say, that's that's some good lawyering. Yes, because these should have been things that were very uniquely identifiable about this person, we spoke about it last week. She was very close to this man for, it sounded like it was like an hour or like longer, maybe. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounded like it was several hours by all the details you gave. Right, right. And then the having to like placate him and making him feel special. Yes, yes. You would have noticed that stuff. I think so. I think so as well. And I think maybe that's why Broadwater thought that he was going to walk, if you will. In his closing arguments, the prosecutor reminded the judge that Siebold had been a virgin, which he had brought up many times before. And the defense was startled when the judge immediately announced that he was ready to rule. He did not take any time to consider anything. And just so you know, this, this trial only lasted two days. It was two hours on the first day and an hour and a half on the next. Oh, my God. This is I don't like this at all. Yeah, it was uh, it was very quick for something so terrible. And his ruling is so bad. Yes. So he gave no insight into his decision and declared that Broadwater was guilty of rape in the first degree. Broadwater was taken into custody from the courtroom without any friends or family by his side because he hadn't asked anyone to come because he felt certain he would walk free. 
Jesus, hell. If something like that happens in your life, you got to always ask at least your ride or die to show up. Yeah, I think so. I would definitely appear in your court trial, Bridget. Oh, I appear in yours too, Molly. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. All in all, Broadwater was convicted of either seven or eight felony accounts at 20 years old. Oh, my God. It's too young. It's very young. The bailiff said, quote, I've been in this business for 30 years. You are the best rape witness we've ever seen on the stand. So this case seemed very obvious to people. Oh, my God. And that's that's like acting. I mean, she should have gotten an Oscar. Well, I don't I still don't know that I can blame her. Okay, I do blame her a lot. She had many times to say, this doesn't seem right. Right. Or something's weird about this. Or what do I actually remember? But I also think that everyone else, not every, not Broadwater, everyone else <laughs> is kind of to blame too. But she did have a lot to be accountable for. And then especially in court, even in Lucky. Okay. So everyone, as you mentioned last time, a lot of. Critics have mentioned that in the book Lucky, there is signs that she was not always um, 100% yes. secure in what she was saying. And so then to sell it in court and have a bailiff come up to you and say, right. like, you're the best rape witness ever of all time. If you were really experiencing that insecurity and you still sold the story that the DA, ADA wanted you to sell. I mean, at least, you know, forget about the Pulitzer or whatever you get for writing and give her a damn Oscar already. So I do want to talk a little bit about post-trial for Broadwater. At 21, Broadwater enters the prison system and goes to various prisons in the New York area. His sentence is about... I I believe it was 25 years. Broadwater acquires his GED and some college credits. He showed some interest in law because he did want to fight for his freedom and repeatedly tried to get his case revisited. Uh, What year did he go in? Uh, I would assume it's 82. Okay, so he's going in at 82. So then... He would be out at 90 or at 2007. Okay. He goes released on the last day of 1998. Oh, so that was when, okay. So when he was released, it was because he served his time. I believe so. Okay. But I'm not completely sure. They did not talk about it because he did have many parole hearings during the time He was incarcerated, but Broadwater refused to admit guilt each time, even though he knew that he would have fared better if he had just accepted responsibility for the crime. Yeah, I think it's I I think that's very admirable. Absolutely. But I think at that point, most people, they are clinging to the innocence is the only thing that's helping them through. 
Yeah. Knowing that they are innocent and to give that up would just. Ooh. I feel like, no, I, I would understand if someone was just like, fuck it. Yeah, I did it. Whatever. Get give me the hell out of here. I would, too. But at the same time, like I emotionally, I can totally believe why. Yeah. Famously, not famously. <laughs> Interestingly, he sent a thousand dollars to Johnny Cochran at some point through his saved disability payments and through a custodial job. But the lawyer returned the money because he did not do post-conviction work. Did he give him a referral? (laughs) No, I don't believe so. Uh, His father, unfortunately, I believe uh, we talked about him a little bit last time. He believed in his son, but he was undergoing chemo and died in 1983. Oh, shoot, man. Yes, he was finally released on the last day of 1998. Um, However, as a sex offender on parole, he had to abide by a curfew, which prohibited him from most workplaces. And you have to report it to everyone. You have to put on your job applications. You have to don't you have to tell people in certain settings that you're like, if you're going to if you're going to ask for a loan. Don't they look into that? I think you are correct. Oh, boy. He had to work many temporary jobs, and he actually ended up taking many night jobs because they gave him the alibi that he lacked during the Siebold case. Oh. He had to be monitored on his computer use, so he found it easier to just not use one. But he continued to reach out to lawyers to help him. That's incredible. Your whole lifestyle changes. I wouldn't have ever thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, one lawyer disappeared with $1,400. Another failed to obtain his file, which had been sealed. When he was in in a car accident, he received a $30,000 payout for a neck injury, but ended up setting aside most of it in hopes that he could pay a lawyer for the case. Man, that one lawyer that absconded, you would never get that money back. Yeah, that's a terrible one. You're not going to go to a small claims court for that. What's What do you think the the limitations on that are? Like, Because after he's exonerated, probably have a much better chance of getting it back now. That might be true. He did begin dating a woman, Elizabeth, about a year after his release. He told her everything, but she stuck by him. And she wanted children, but he didn't believe it was fair to bring children into this world knowing they would have the stigma of their father. Oh, my God. What a gem. I mean, that's incredible. Because I would imagine... That would be a very difficult decision to make and then tell your partner and then ask your partner to stand by you still. Yeah, it is. I'll try to keep this short because it's a little bit uninteresting. I'm not quite sure. This is what happened to Alice afterwards. She finishes her degree. She moves to Texas to get an MFA from the University of Houston. But she drops out because she feels like she needs more real world experience. She moves to Manhattan 
and lives there for 10 years. And the articles that I read talk about how she joined a troubled crowd and she experimented with heroin. Oh, boy. So she got one. You have to, I think you have to leave this in because we got to know what happened to the spoiled woman. She joins an MFA program, which isn't easy. Drops out because she says she doesn't have enough real world experience, which I'm sure is mostly true, but also that kind of trauma, both from your childhood and what happened to you in undergrad. I think that's about as real as life experience gets. You're right, but I think that there must not have been teachers there to help her at that point is what I would think. Well, yeah, if she moves to Manhattan and starts doing heroin, she says she left because she didn't have enough real world experience. And I think that's probably the story she told herself for wanting to literally escape. She escapes her MFA program and then starts doing a drug that really taps you out of reality. While in New York, she works as an adjunct professor at Hunter College. That's not a bad gig. Yes. This is the only place she feels that she fits in since her rape. She really feels disconnected from people at this point. Though she says the reason is because many in her class were minority students who had gone through similar hardships. Seems a little. When did she say that? (laughs) Uh, Presumably after the fact, after she gets famous and people start interviewing her. This is like some white lady bullshit. It feels very white lady. How can I be a racist? Right. I love teaching minority students. Uh, So after 10 years, she moves to California and first becomes a caretaker of the Dorland Mountain Arts Colony where she earned $386 a month and lived in a cabin in the woods without electricity. Not a bad gig. Yeah. She has some fun experiences and then enters the creative writing program at UC Irvine in 1995. Oh, that's where Laurel works. She starts by writing a novel about a girl who was raped and murdered, but then realizes that she needs to tell her own story first. So... 15 years after the rape, she writes the memoir Lucky, and it is published in 1999, which receives positive reviews, but only really reaches a small audience, mostly those who are interested in rape recovery. So other white ladies who are in social programs. Probably. She meets and marries her husband at Irvine. and. After writing the memoir, she returns to her story, which eventually becomes The Lovely Bones, the overnight success. Which is a sad, creepy movie. I'll mention it again. She wins a bunch of awards. Peter Jackson obtains the rights to the story for his movie, which is then released in 2009. And her success allows her to... Moved to a townhouse in San Francisco. And that is before the tech boom. 
there wasn't that come bubble in the late 90s too right i mean i think they were mostly like in the silicon valley which is a little south and i think it was like 2008 when google moved to san francisco and then that really blew up the housing market i only know that because it was the talk of the town when I was there in 2008. That does make sense. Okay, yes. I prob- I would probably imagine she beat the tech people. Just as an aside, her second novel, Almost Noon, was about a suburban woman who kills her elderly mother in a fit of rage. And apparently, the story she wanted to tell through this novel was her mother's because... Her mother also wanted to pursue a career in writing and poetry. Oh, wow. This feels very, it does, it feels very Freudian. Yes, yes, very much so. But here we make a turn. Preparing to make the film, executive producer Timothy Muccianti read the book and realized there were some serious questions regarding the guilt of Gregory Madison. Gregory Madison being the stand-in name for Anthony Broadwater. Okay, I was like, I must really miss something (laughs) here. No, she used a pseudonym. She did not use his name in the book. He brought up his concerns to his colleagues, but was assured that the publisher had fact-checked and vetted the book. Now, interestingly enough, Timothy was... A No, Timothy is a convicted felon who had served time for bank fraud and had been disbarred from practicing law. Wait, who is this? This is the executive producer on Lucky, the film. So this guy used to be a lawyer. Yes. And then he lost that. Yes. He said, I'm going to make movies instead. Yes. Great. (laughs) That's his story. So. Although he knows his conviction was justified, supposedly, he felt some kinship with this convicted felon because he had also served time. Oh, so they have like a a bond. Yes. A cosmic bond. It's true. In addition, the director wanted to change the race of the perpetrator to be white. And Mucianti muses that perhaps she also had misgivings about the story and wanted to move the film version further from reality and more into fiction. But we don't know that. So anyway, due to both of these issues, he stops funding the projects and hires Dan Myers, who is a private investigator in Syracuse. He quickly finds out Anthony Broadwater is the Gregory Madison from the novel. Oh, you know, this could be a film noir. Oh, it may be. It may be. Someone needs to write what's happening now and make a film noir film from this and make sure that Alice does not see a penny. Interestingly enough, Mucciani doesn't blame 18-year-old Alice Siebold. But he does question 33-year-old Alice Siebold, who allegedly looked over the entire file, including the photo of the police lineup before she wrote her book. 
And he says that she should have seen the difference between the people in the lineup that she claimed were nearly identical, which we spoke about last week. That's interesting because I don't know, maybe we talked about it last week, but just like how when you're writing a memoir, there's a lot you exaggerate story changes because you workshop your writings and then you see how people will react and kind of like her court performance where she should have gotten an Oscar. It's kind of like writing this story too, where she can show some doubt, but then selling the story in other aspects like, Oh, they were almost identical. The only doubt I've had was what was inside my head, not what was happening outside of me. If that makes sense. It's not external. It's internal. I think so. And I'm sure when she's pointed out the wrong guy, I'm sure whoever was there, the ADA or the cops were like, oh, I would have made the same mistake. They're identical. And I'm sure enough people said that, that you're just like, oh, yeah, that's what I'm going to. That is now a fact inside my head. Yeah, for sure. But he also blames the journalists who interviewed Siebold on the book who didn't offer any pushback. And we can see that now because there's many people who've written articles since about reading it post-exoneration and reading it in a very different way. It's such a weird thing to come after journalists for. I mean, journalists already kind of suck. I disagree because I think that a good journalist would have asked some of those questions, though. Like, oh, that's really weird that you misidentified the guy. What's your story about that? Like, just prodding a little bit. But even our our stance as a society on rape has changed tremendously within our lifetimes that I'm sure there were certain aspects to the doubt and the storytelling where you might feel like you don't ask those questions because you're trying to honor this person's story versus now when you're like, okay, we've had everyone wrongfully convicted and we're now definitely seeing that with DNA. So (laughs) maybe there's a lot we were doing wrong. And I would even argue to say like some of this DNA science has really changed. It's helped back you know, original activist views of saying, hey, if there's any sense of doubt here, we should really consider that. And now that we have like loads of proof that we have been wrong, (laughs) we as a society, I think it's aided in some of that more empathic, advanced communication. I can see what you're saying, for sure. Muccianti, he also has one more point which is from the book Lucky. So about a year and a half after the rape and conviction, presumably, a man enters Siebold's apartment through a window in Siebold's bedroom, which had a broken lock. And he makes her best friend and roommate, Lila, move to Siebold's room to rape her in Siebold's bed. Wait, I'm blown away. So there's another rape in this book? Yes. That happens to to her? To her roommate. To her roommate. Wow. This is something, I got to say. It is. So he asks Lila about Seabold and, quote, somehow knew her name. What? 
And was this was this after going through court with Broadwater? Do you know? Yes. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my fucking God. How many rapists do you know? I, I would like to take a guess here and say, Alex, who is the same person? That would be my guess as well. <laughs> However, the police theorize that Lila has been raped by a friend of Broadwater's as revenge for his incarceration. Oh, yeah. You know how revenge rapes are happening all the time. Um, but we don't talk enough about revenge rape. <laughs> Siebold does write that this seems like a stretch. Oh, my God. So right there, also admitting something else. Oh, God. Lord in heaven. So Mucciani thinks, did she never have the thought that this guy could have been the same man who raped her? Like, how does she compartmentalize that and then go on to write the book? Yes, I would like to know and I would like to take notes. <laughs> I need that skill. Ah, so the hero of this story is Muccianti. And he puts Broadwater in touch with a lawyer named David Hammond to work on his case. Lawyers David Hammond and Melissa Swartz take his case and the case rests on the hair analysis, which we know now is pseudoscience, and also the prosecutorial misconduct, which we already spoke about, along with the idea of the single witness cross-racial identification, which we also talked about, and then also the judge's familiarity with Siebel during the case, which was highly improper and reinforced the lack of due process. And then on November 22nd of 2021, Broadwater was exonerated by a state judge. Wait, so the whole reason that anyone saw this case afterwards was because of this producer? Yep. So this producer saved Broadwater? He did. Oh, my God. That's that's incredible. That's insane. That's also insane because like this man couldn't do it by himself. We as a society have made it impossible for this man to come out and clear his name. But as soon as like some Hollywood producer gets involved, it's like, oh, I guess we can revisit this. Yes. He might make a movie about it. <laughs> yes. So in the case, the judge, the lawyers and the current DA agree that the case against him was woefully flawed. Quote, it was professionally sickening. This was not Alabama in 1950. This was Syracuse, New York in 1982. This was the current DA of Onondaga County. I mean, it's it's incredible because that's like how in denial I feel like as white people we are about racism is like oh, we all have to compare it to this old South situation. And it's like, no, bitch, it's still happening. Yes, it's very true. The speed that the case was overturned stunned all the people who were watching because usually these things are dragged out for indefinite amounts of time. So that really points to how obvious this case was. 
Was Siebold at all involved? Like usually when someone gets exonerated for something, usually like the victim would testify before the exoneration. So it'd be like, oh, here's my side of it. This person really hurt me and I'm so damaged by it. Was that a case in this? She was not. And I believe it's because it was so obvious. Oh, she knew. She was like, I fucked up. I'm not even going to go there and vouch for him. No, I don't think it was necessarily that. I think it was that the state wasn't even going to call her in the first place. Can you do that? Well, yeah, because because the idea that the case would have been longer was the idea that the prosecution, the state would have had to argue something. Oh, yeah. So the pros, the DA saw this. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. And it was obviously we're like, we're not going to prosecute because it was so obvious to the DA. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. (laughs) Yes, the the DA has since promised Broadwater to share the story to ensure that it does not happen again. If we go back, the original prosecutor, William Mastine, refuses to answer any questions. And the judge from the case is dead that old racist it's it's hard to say because the defense attorney thought he might be a competent judge i feel like that is the way if you're involved in the court system at all and what i've seen about terrible judges is like everyone pretends like the worst even the worst judges were like somehow good people because the moment lawyers and judges start attacking other judges, then it kind of devalues the whole system that everyone is invested in. I think you're right to a certain extent, but at the same time, like there are literally judges who are recalled. The The state bar usually has some sort of say where they can say, we support this judge or we don't. And so recently there's been cases where they will not support this person for office. Yeah. And I would say that's also more recent. Yeah. Yeah, sure. As people have become more aware of like, like the Black Lives Matter movement, I think it's made more people accountable for, oh shit, (laughs) we can't, we can't just let blame racists work for us anymore. Sure. Even if they are a judge. But I mean, I would almost argue that that, is also because people have become more blatant as opposed to there being, I mean, I could be wrong. I could definitely be wrong. Well, I, I mean, and I'm mostly thinking from like the Chicago seven that came out, that judge was bananas. I was watching the Darren Aronofsky film about a documentary he did on the villages. And this old guy is old man got in trouble with like drug possession in the villages and he's like this old nice hippie dude who doesn't understand how the court system works because up until you know his his like uh old age rebellion he was a pretty well-behaved well-adjusted white guy who never had to go to court and just like the way the judge was talking to him it was very old-fashioned you're in my court i'm an asshole and i it's okay because this is my job, you know, like, and I've heard lawyers on podcasts talk about like how judges 
make the calls in their courtroom and they can get away with saying what are microaggressions towards being sexist or racist. And it gets by because they're the ones in the courtroom and it takes a lot to recall a judge. And it's right. probably even harder to recall a judge on something that comes back, comes off as a microaggression versus like saying, um, I'm an old racist. Sure. To wrap this up, Muchianti definitely has started to work on a new film, which is entitled Unlucky about Broadwater's wrongful conviction. Nice. I hope Broadwater sees some money from that. I imagine he will. So it took Seabold eight days to come out with an apology. And when she did, there was a lukewarm reception. Eight days? Eight days. What was she sitting on? People speculate that it had to go through lawyers. Eight days? What are you paying those lawyers? I think also it was probably one of those things where she thought she could get away with not saying anything for a while until the end. I think that's what it is. And then she has her little like white woman clan following who's like, what are you going to say to this? And obviously she's fucking stupid. Yes. So the apology is not great. No one believes it's great. It is written in the passive voice and she takes pretty much no responsibility for it. Eight days to send out some passive-aggressive post-it note? Oh, my God. Yeah, it's not great. Not great. Um, luckily, luckily, <laughs> the publisher has pulled Lucky from the shelves, and they are looking to reissue it, right? Yeah. I think you mentioned that in the first episode. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. That's incredible. Who would buy that book? Now, I mean, I feel like if you bought the book now, it's because you're you're studying like how bad white women are in school. I would imagine, at least from a publisher standpoint, that they would capture the audience that's just like, give me anything. The clickbait audience that's like, now I had to read what happens next. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> this isn't a real story with real people's lives. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a niche for that. There absolutely is. It's, it's terrible. It's just terrible. It's like saving people watching like Real Housewives. Yeah. It's like, how? How and why? And a lot of the critical articles did talk about how Lucky was a very convenient narration. It comes across as a fictional murder story as opposed to a memoir. And the problem is that life isn't that neat and there aren't morals and lessons we all learn at the end of the story. Is that how she wrote it? No. She ends Lucky pretty much talking about how she will always forever be changed by this and she's going to carry these scars with her for the rest of her life and she will always be... It, it seems like she focuses a lot on how she's always going to be othered like, she'll never connect with people. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, good Lord. Yikes. But I think that's just, you know, that's what the trauma did to her in the 80s without therapy. And oh, I just I'm done, dude. I am so done <laughs> with 
especially fucking white people bitching about how hard it is. And it's like, do you understand you're like never going to go to jail or serve a full jail sentence just because of the color of your skin? It's that's rough. That is so rough. And then to say you're othered, fuck off. Right. It's so narcissistic or like self-indulgent. Yeah. She hasn't done the work. Yeah. You need to do the work, babe. Get some Brene Brown or whatever the fuck. Uh, anything else or, <laughs> um, well, I gotta say, I hope she doesn't get any more deals. I don't think she will. Well, I mean, I don't think anyone ever gets truly canceled. Right. That's the, that's what I'm thinking too. Like they wait three years and then she releases another book. Oh yeah. What I learned from right. my shitty mistakes or even when they re-release Lucky. I'm sure she has some sort of ownership over that publication. So if they're going to reissue it, they will also consult her and make it into this like, oh, my God, this is a plot line on work in progress with. Oh, I can't think of her name off the top of my head. But the woman who played Pat, it's Pat. They have an ongoing story about how. She's like apologizing for Pat and like trying not to get canceled. And while doing that, she's like booking more gigs. And I feel like that is what's going to happen to this woman is like she's going to go on an apology to her. That's probably true. And then white women are going to be like, I totally get it. I once said something at work. HR said I was wrong. They, you know, there's like a load of white women who like want that cathartic i've been in a white woman jail yuck anyways don't hire her and don't buy her new book and don't go give her money to see her on tour but you know if you do want to read the book you probably should just go to the library anyway there you go invest more in our public libraries folks i use mine online all the time especially for research for this podcast me too Online libraries are the best. Well, thank you for doing all of that research and two episodes. My golly, Molly. Yes. I hope it was interesting enough to hold up, but I I thought it there was just so many details that I thought were relevant. It's definitely interesting. There's like so many nuances to it. And it's something that honestly, I think I saw on Twitter trending for like two days and then it was like no one was talking about it so i'm glad we're talking about it yeah i i agree in case you missed it in case you were busy that weekend now you know the story now you know the goss thanks again molly where can people find you you can find me on twitter and instagram at molly mm9 and you have a a Substack or newsletter? Oh, yes. Well, I did just send out some tax tips. If you're interested in learning more, go to www.m3virtualaccounting.com. I did have the fortune of receiving one of your emails, and there are some real hot tips on there. There is stuff I wouldn't have considered. 
if you are, especially if you started a side gig this year, it's great to consult an accountant. And Molly does a free consultation. I do indeed. Where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bridget underscore suck it. You can find this podcast on those same platforms at sex with ghost underscore. And you could show support by rating and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That just helps make us look like a real podcast, which we are. And you've seen the work we put in. And if you want to show monetary support, you can always do that at patreon.com slash sex with ghosts. I did want to say thank you to the people who have given us reviews. We do really appreciate. We read and appreciate all of them. Yeah, we just got one and Molly and I loved it. It was very kind. Until next week. Bye. Bye.